Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Tonight's topic is dress. When the sympathetic nervous system is very quickly activated by a challenge or threat and it goes into overdrive, we call that very often panic attack. For tonight, I'm like, I'm going to be addressing low levels of chronic sympathetic nervous system activation. What that means is when your midbrain, a small region of your midbrain, the amygdala, which is uh, a part of the midbrain that gets all of the information that's coming in through your senses. It's, there's a, literally a circuit that routes it in from the thalamus to your amygdala, and it gets, it gets all the raw data before you even realize what's going on, before you <clears throat> can name or really uh, understand the situation. Your amygdala looks it over and it determines whether it spots something that in the past was uh, challenging, difficult, emotionally painful, or something that's novel or something that it requires your attention. And then it initiates what's called first the startle response. And the startle response is very, there's nothing wrong with a startle response. Uh, essentially, the amygdala sends a message to the medulla, the brainstem, all that stuff, and activates the release of norepinephrine, which is commonly known as adrenaline. And you get very quickly ready for action in the startle response. There's nothing wrong with adrenaline or epinephrine. It's, uh, it allows, essentially, it, your heart races faster, the arteries contract, sends blood more efficiently to muscles. Your stomach contracts to staunch the blood outwards to the, you know, the thing, the fight flight that's going to allow you to survive. Your senses become much sharper. You breathe quicker and you become hyper alert. And, but all that is still, uh, from physiological and psychological perspective, that's, it's healthy. Uh, in fact, without adrenaline rushes, not only would we not be able to have survived as a species, the ability to secrete adrenaline allows us the sense that we can overcome challenges and that we have some degree of agency in the world. The problem, as it were, is that adrenaline actually subsides pretty quickly. And once it subsides, to maintain readiness and vigilance and survival mode, there's a secondary system that kicks in, and that's what I'm going to be talking about tonight, that secondary system which kicks in and lasts for the duration, however long you are stressed out. Um, it engages an access uh, known as the HPA, which is your hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenal glands. And they are, they communicate uh, through ACTH. You don't have to know any of this. But what happens is when the secondary system kicks in, it secretes a stress hormone called cortisol. Uh, 
And cortisol is what we feed on when we're in chronic stress or low-level stress. It is a kind of a, a stay alert, stay vigilant, and it's associated with all of the negative uh, long-term and short-term uh, negative uh, results or negative uh, outcomes of stress. So ideally what should happen is we would see something that requires our attention immediately, uh, something we've forgotten to do, uh, email we've forgotten to send uh, uh, that was important, or, or somebody we're late for an appointment that's important. And so it activates this stress response. We race to deal with it, and ideally, once we deal with the challenge, then this whole system, the sympathetic nervous system, should switch off, and we should go back to the first state of rest and digest, of homeostasis, of the window of tolerance where we can relax and deal with things patiently, calmly, and you know, um, enlist help if we need it. Um, but what happens if one chronically or consistently perceives a threat is always present and therefore fails to switch off their uh, essentially their HPA the amygdala is constantly firing saying alert 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 and so cortisol is constantly uh, being secreted and it's turned into the fuel that is keeping us alert. We're not feeding off of dopamine or adrenaline or uh, acetylcholine, any of the healthier uh, approaches. Well, dopamine can have its bad effects too, but we're feeding off of cortisol. So long-term cortisol activation is, uh, there's no way to over, uh, to exaggerate how uh, uh, unhealthy it can be. There's no way to really, uh, you know, exaggerate. Uh, it's associated first with um, uh, chronic muscle tension. Uh, it activates a circuit, the ventral medial, which creates negative, self-oriented, repetitive, obsessive ideations that repeat the same thing over and over again. It narrows our focus. It, uh, essentially, uh, the, the most paranoid states that we wind up in, uh, where we don't trust others. It, uh, there's a buildup in fat tissue. There's very quickly, as it um, disrupts sleep and digestion, it will lead to chronic fatigue and exhaustion. Uh, eventually, high blood pressure. Uh, um, the uh, uh, artery clogging deposits start to build up. Uh, it damages severely the immune system. When people have ongoing chronic stress, they become susceptible to uh, virtually, I mean, an unlimited array of opportunistic viruses. And also many, too many studies to mention have shown that when people um, are treating illnesses, especially uh, diabetes or cancer, um, the amount of cortisol 
can be extremely compromising, not because it's compromising the immune system, it can lead to uh, impaired healing. Uh, it leads also because one is constantly jumpy, on guard, feeling threatened, um, on edge, unable to sleep, unable or sleep is interrupted, uh, one's, uh, one's appetite changes erratically, um, there's a sense of um, inability to collaborate, irritability, jumpiness and so forth. So overall, to switch off the system, to switch off the chronic state of there's something I can't, I have to deal with, I can't let go. If I don't deal, if I don't stay on it, then everything in my life's going to fall apart, whatever. Um, people then will begin to rely on addictive mood altering substances to regulate their sympathetic nervous system, to switch it off. And so generally the most common is that they'll seek, uh, something that slams their brain with GABA such as alcohol or benzos, or maybe they'll uh, seek out opiates and so forth. But they will essentially seek exogenous, excuse me, substances to switch off and get them out of chronic stress. The problem is that they're not actually addressing the alarm system that keeps going off. So the moment the substances wear off, they're right back in the chronic stress. And what's worse is that now they become reliant on, uh, they become addicted to substances and they require more and more and more of the substances to switch off the sympathetic nervous system for a while and to put them in this artificial uh, dorsal dive, uh, collapse state. So why is the big question then is knowing all this, why do some people's alarm systems keep going off? <laughs> why do at periods of our life, do we perceive chronic states of, of, of being unsafe, being threatened? Why do we uh, have uh, phases where um, we cannot reliably stay in the window of tolerance. So there's some research that shows, of course, that there's genetic predispositions to uh, chronic stress. Um, and that has to do with genetic variations in the HPA axis or in the sympathetic nervous system. Um, and, but nobody suggests that these genetic predilections in and of themselves alone are responsible for it. There is uh, uh, just reams of research, however, that show that <coughs> there are uh, extreme comorbidity or overlap between people who have early attachment wounds, i.e. broken or unsubstantial bonds with caregivers, or subsequent tra traumas in life. And those two events can have um, 
are the most likely culprits in chronic stress, whether it's something that becomes an ongoing or is just a certain an event that happens during uh, extended phases or stages in life. So um, when there's a trauma, a life-threatening event in life, what happens is the uh, we go first into uh, very often a state of overwhelm. We shut down and the events are not recorded in normal memory structures and they're shunted off into unconscious regions of your right hemisphere where they're compartmentalized and kept out of your normal ongoing autobiography of your life. But whenever something in your day-to-day life reminds you of the trauma, it can initiate the stress response. And if that ongoing, if there's something that in your environment continually reminds you of the trauma, then it can initiate this lasting chronic stress. For example, if somebody has had a, uh, has had a, a sexual assault or has been uh, experienced a trauma in some form of a relationship and then subsequently in their life they start dating again, the ongoing exposure to the stimuli that reminds them of the trauma can initiate this ongoing stress response. If somebody was abused uh, at some point or assaulted by somebody who then and later on in life looks a lot like their boss or their colleague at work and because they have this extended exposure they will wind up in a chronic state of stress um, the other way that chronic stress can happen is early attachment wounds so people who grow up with secure attachments with caregivers, roughly half of the population, show uh, that as, as you look and you follow the longitudinal studies, there's very little incidence of chronic stress and very little incidence, by the way, of addiction. Um, these are people who uh, are easy to soothe and easy to trust other people and expect the best out of situations because in childhood they felt uh, reliably that when they were stressed out, when they were overwhelmed, that their caregivers would be available and would know how to soothe them. And so they develop this, uh, their right hemisphere is shaped in the first two years to expect uh, soothing, to expect care, and to expect that they're not in it alone. But children, the other half of the population, um, the ones that, of us that didn't get reliably soothed during stressful periods of childhood, develop, of course, a unconscious perception that we are essentially alone in the world or not, we're up against it ourselves, or that at best, we have to continually grab, seek, and claim the attention if we're going to get any kind of uh, soothing from somebody else. We can't just relax. We have to constantly 
seek out their attention. So people who have what's known as anxious or preoccupied attachment are those that in childhood got, sometimes they got soothing, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they were left in a stress state uh, because they didn't feel fed or they didn't feel seen or they felt alone or they felt overwhelmed and there wasn't a lot of at times soothing. And so these are people who grow up to experience a lot of stress in important relationships. They live in the constant expectation of abandonment. They live in, uh, they're terrified of separation from the loved. They, um, and they develop a strategy in, in childhood of amping up their affects, their emotions to be seen, to get attention, to get care. So essentially they wind up as adults with uh, very straightforward predilections towards chronic stress, especially, especially in terms of their relationships, first and foremost. Those of us that wind up with dismissive attachment, on the other hand, essentially gave up on, on their caregivers to soothe them, and after a while sought to become as self-reliant and independent and seek distance whenever they could. And so these are people who, one, feel stress when they are asked or demanded to become intimate or to share their emotions. That's the exact opposite of what they want to do. And they also feel a significant amount of stress when anything that compromises their self-reliance and independence so if something happens to them, the, the security of their job or security of their finances, the very elements of their life that bestow them independence and give them the illusion that they can live life independently without relying on others, that's where they experience stress. So people who are anxious experience stress primarily in terms of important attachment figures, whereas people who are avoidant experience stress when somebody asks them to commit or be obligated to uh, some form of a relationship or when something threatens their independence, especially their job. And finally, there's small uh, amount of the population are what's known as fearful or disorganized, and they have a negative view of themselves or others. They were frightened of their caregivers, and therefore they are <coughs> very quick to go into a state of overwhelm and expect, expect both abandonment and rejection. So they fear both. And they have a tendency to try to hide and avoid challenges. And so they will move erratically between stress and emotional overwhelm and shutdown. So I guess the big message is that whether there's an unresolved trauma or an unresolved attachment, insecure attachment wounds, uh, these are the common denominators in chronic stress. Um, and uh, so um, now onto the solutions. How do we address this? And of course, the solutions I'm going to break down into two groups. One is situationally, which will, uh, strategies we can use to lessen chronic stress and while it's present. 
but these first strategies do not in any way address the underlying wounds that uh, are the culprits. And then the second I'll be talking about as well, um, a strategy or two that will address the underlying causes of chronic stress. So first, um, <coughs> there's a lot of studies that show, uh, I mean, so many that show the success of mindfulness as a, as a stress reduction strategy. Um, what mindfulness does, especially in the contemporary protocols associated with people like John Kabat-Zinn and other American, um, essentially people who've translated early Buddhist practices into clinical settings, is that it gives us a system of turning our attention to our internal experience and thus disconnecting the hypervigilance and hyperattention to the world around us. And that in and of itself, just that, begins to deactivate the stress response. Because when people are chronically stressed, they are fully engaged in what's known as exteroception. They're constantly monitoring the world around them. They're constantly externally engaged and they're constantly listening to the repetitive activation of the default mode which is just repetitive self-oriented thoughts about uh catastrophizing thoughts and what could go wrong and how you know the possible negative outcomes and so forth so the first significant strategy of training the mind to become aware of internal sensations. First off is always becoming aware of the breath and the body, and then moving on to feelings in the front of the body, and then moods that we're in. Becoming aware of our internal experience, just that is very influential over the right amygdala, because it's essentially pulling all the sensory data now to uh, sensations that are not threatening. So immediately just turning your experience, your intention, your attention inwards is a very successful strategy. Um, work by Elizabeth Hoge and Sarah Lazar at um, the Centers for Anxiety and Traumatic Stress Disorders at Massachusetts General Hospital and Sarah Lazar's at Harvard Medical School. They've done classic fMRI studies with people who practice mindfulness, and they show that the activation of the amygdala, which is the alarm system that sets off chronic stress, stops becoming hyperactive. And they show also that regions of the brain that are associated with being over to override stress, such as your cingulate, which can devote your attention and, and focus your attention away from stressors, become, you get, it builds up gray matter. Um, Chiheli Mahi, you can't pronounce this guy's name. It's just impossible. He's got, he's literally got a name with 15 letters. He's Hungarian and not one of them is a vowel. Uh, so I'm always guessing. It's C-S-I-K-S-Z-N-T-M-H-A-L-Y-I. -I. Um, 
And his first name is Michele Michele Mani, so it's just a, it's just a disaster. But uh, his famous work was on flow, and flow is uh, a state where people activate a secondary circuit in their frontal lobe known as task positive mode. Task positive mode is the circuit that goes off when you're focusing your attention on something that is interactive, immersive, and it's something that you do almost invariably with your hands. So classic flow states are things like gardening, pottery, drawing, uh, knitting, uh, sculpture, uh, drawing, uh, anything that we're playing an instrument, anything where you're using your hands and you're focusing and you're getting ongoing feedback with what you do is a um, flow state. And when you're in a flow state, the, the research shows that the sympathetic nervous system and the ventromedial and the default mode operation where we're most miserable in our life, where the spiraling thoughts keep going off and on, I mean, on and on and on and on and on, uh, essentially are switched off. Um, so if there's some activity that you can do that focuses your attention on something that is immersive, that will almost invariably be a successful strategy that you can employ. The work of uh, the great uh, anxiety and fear neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux uh, at the NYU Emotions Lab, has, uh, he talks about how efficient uh, uh, breath awareness can be in deactivated chronic stress. Essentially, when you breathe out very long, much longer than your inhalations, it uh, releases acetylcholine, it activates the vagal break, which slows down your heart rate, and it sends a message up through the, I think the C nerve fibers, or maybe the vagal, no, the vagal nerve, excuse me, it sends a message up through the vagal nerve, and it uh, informs your amygdala that you are safe, because nobody who's breathing that way was, is, could be under attack or under threat. So breath, awareness, maintaining attention to it, and focusing on long exhalations. Abdominal breathing rather than chest breathing also is associated with relax. Um, the work of Elisa and Stephanie Goldstein, I read some of their, uh, which shows that um, uh, visualizations of safe places and uh, that and times in our life where we've been relaxed and peaceful. One study showed that if people, I think it was by Burton and Laura King, people who write about positive experiences uh, show um, uh, improvement with chronic stress. So sitting down and writing about a pleasant experience the brain, unfortunately, has what's called negativity bias. We're five times more likely to focus attention and remember um, negative events, negative stimuli, than we are positive. It takes about a half a second to remember a negative experience. 
It takes about 20 seconds to remember a positive one. So very infrequently, people actually take the time to ingrain positive experiences. So, uh, uh, what's his name? Hansen um, talks about the importance of savoring. Uh, Rick Hansen talks about the importance of savoring. When some, you have a positive experience, when you achieve something, when you do something that helps others, when you feel good, stop and spend 20 seconds literally visualizing and s literally uh, neurally ingraining it <clears throat> because the brain is, has such a predilection to focus on threats that'll trigger the sympathetic nervous system. To deactivate, we have to spend far more time ingraining positive experiences. Um, in terms of addressing the underlying uh, wounds, uh, especially uh, in attachment wounds, uh, one strategy that really works exceedingly well is an ancient Buddhist practice called um, loving-kindness meditation. Visualizing people that we feel really um, empathetic, we care about people who uh, we have positive emotions in relationship with, people who we associate with care and attention, soothing. Um, there's a great uh, Buddhist psychologist, uh, Barbara Fredrickson, University of North Carolina, very, very important, uh, came up with the broaden and build theory, uh, which is, uh, talked about the reason we have positive emotions. Uh, for a long time, it was a mystery why human beings have positive emotions. It's clear why we have negative ones. They're all associated with survival impulses. So from an evolutionary perspective, fear, anger, uh, grief all have uh, impel us to survival-based behaviors that protect us. But what is the evolutionary purpose of joy or uh, contentment or uh, interest or gratitude? Um, up until Fredrickson's work, there it was kind of a mystery, but Fredrickson showed that all positive emotions have something in common. They deactivate the sympathetic nervous system. They deactivate stress. And they return us to the rest and digest homeostatic window of tolerance where we can bond with others, celebrate our resources, connect and make new alliances and so forth. So the role of positive emotions is to essentially keep us out of chronic stress. So a lot of her research went into how do we ingrain this... Um, these, how do we develop positive emotions? And one strategy she found that was very successful, as I said, was loving kindness. Loving kindness is, again, in the visualizing of people that we care about, not only does it activate all the positive emotions associated with bonding, but it does something at the same time that's really important it actually can begin over time to address the early attachment wounds, feeling that we're in, we're 
we're in it alone, that we can't rely on others, that there's no one that we can turn to, or that when we're under stress in certain situations, we have to deal with it ourselves. The constant daily visualization of positive attachments actually can begin to address these attachment wounds. And the work of Brown and Elliot at Harvard has shown that visualizations based on secure figures actually can significantly change people's attachment styles. So whew, what we're going to be doing is we are actually going to be using all of those techniques in tonight's meditation. I'm going to be leading you through the breath, the mindfulness, the visualization of a secure space, and then finally we're going to be doing the loving kindness. So I'm going to give, be giving you all of the strategies of addressing stress in the hopes that one of them you'll remember and employ in your life. So thank you for listening. I hope something in there was interesting or worth your uh, attention. And uh, now find a really comfortable seated position. To try to just find a really sustainable position that feels pretty upright and tall. Most important, take your chin and lift it a little so that any inclination to allow your head to allow your head to sort of droop in front of your chest to slouch. We want to we want to uh, sort of counterbalance away from that. So and if in this meditation you at any point feel the need to change your position, that's okay. Just do it so quietly that the person you're sitting next to can't hear. So that requires just a little bit of uh, planning ahead before you move. So first, um, just bringing attention to the eyes and encourage the eyes to settle the eyes to float in the eye sockets it's their time off if you can settle the eyes that's can so quickly attenuate the busyness in the mind softening the cranial muscles releasing any tendency to clench the jaw and just taking the corners of the mouth and spreading them apart so that 
just that has influence over the midbrain. softening the muscles in the throat and if it feels appropriate rolling the shoulders back so that you open up your chest nice open chest keeping your arms away from don't keep your arms tight to your side that initiates the startle response. We want to do the opposite. We want to keep our chest and shoulders open and just allow your arms to fall away from the body, maybe fall onto your knees, resting. And then bringing attention to your abdomen and Try to feel the inhalation and the exhalation in your belly rather than your chest. So imagine that you're breathing into your belly and that you can almost experience the air leading to the expansion. And then as you breathe out, long, very slow, patient, smooth, unforced exhalation, you feel this relaxation in this relaxation response in the belly. releasing any clenching in the buttocks and the legs and just allowing the body to sink into the floor, releasing any tightness in the feet. And bringing attention to the breath and for a little while <coughs> we'll maintain attention to the breath by counting if that's a strategy that works for you just thinking one on the in-breath two on the out three on the in-breath four on the out-breath and when you reach five on the next inhalation start counting back down four on the out three on the inhalation two on the exhalation and so forth counting up one to five and back down 
The exhalations are always long, slow. The inhalations are full but not extended. And that's all we have to do for a little while. Of course, normally when we disconnect from the world around us, the mind has been trained over the course of life to believe that's time to fantasize or work through unresolved issues or plan or strategize or essentially get lost in a lot of thought. And while sometimes in life that's appropriate, if that's inevitably the case, very often we'll wind up lost in stressful thought. We won't be able to self-soothe and deactivate stress. Chronic negative catastrophizing thoughts continually reactivate the amygdala and the stress system. So part of self-soothing is just keeping our attention on safe, soothing sensations. Every time you get lost in thought, that's okay, just note it. Whatever the thought was, just promise it you'll deal with it a little later. You just need a little rest right now. And just bring your awareness back to your body, reconnecting with the breath.
So we've been concentrating on the breath, which is a very useful strategy. Next we'll do a little bit of mindfulness, which means becoming aware of the core internal sensations that make up the present moment. So just first start with surveying your body. What are the sensations that are most apparent associated with sitting? Part of mindfulness is to engage with the present moment without any, as if we've never done this experience before, without any views or opinions, to be curious. It's just to investigate what's present. Imagine, as it were, you're a, a visitor from another planet that has landed in a human body and you've never experienced a human body before. What is the sensations of sitting? the slight movement, balancing, very subtle sway, feeling of the breath, perhaps the lights behind closed eyelids and the sounds drifting in. But focusing attention as well on the sensations of tightness, heaviness, ease, clenching, movement, energy. Any prominent sensations, just bring your attention to it, observe, without any judgment. And then, moving our attention to the second inquiry, how do you feel right now? Feeling is just an overall, I like what's going on, I don't like what's going on, I have no opinion. Those are the three real settings. If you like, if you feel comfortable, if it's pleasant, you'll notice the body's relaxed, you'll feel settled. The belly will feel open as the chest. There will be sensations of ease in the face. An overall pleasant tone. On the other hand, 
if there's a degree of stress or unpleasant tone, then you might notice the stomach becomes tight or the chest feels clenched, the jaw locked, the forehead furrowed. It might be this uh, constriction in the throat, the shoulders might begin to creep upwards. So what do you feel? Pleasant or unpleasant? Or just neutral? Neither a strong sensation of ease or lack of ease, just nothing noticeable. Again, just curious. And then for our third inquiry, what mood are you in right now? What's going on in the mind? Not the specific thoughts, just what's the weather like in the mind? Clear, spacious, open, engaged, tight, dark, your mind might be jumpy, attention might wander, or you might feel really tired, you might feel really energetic. If it's jumpy, you might feel anxious. If you were asked what mood you're in, just note, and note how you would know what mood you're in. Labeling the experience, so useful. And then for our third tool, bring to mind a place in your life where you feel safe, where you feel all the challenges and issues are very far away. place or a time where you give yourself permission to relax, a beach, a park, a country, house, an inn by a lake, a very open, spacious room with a comfortable couch, 
the fireplace. Just visualize the location and try to bring your recreate the sensations in your mind of that place where you feel safe. If you're at a beach, what happens to your body when you're at a beach? It relaxes, it softens, it releases, <coughs> it soaks in the sensations. Try to make the sensations, the visuals as detailed as you can, and just try to also recreate the somatic state, the physical state that you experience when you're in this safe location. So lastly, I'd like you to bring to mind someone that you associate with, that you feel good about, that you associate with bonding or togetherness or trust, someone who you can relax with, you can be your self, you don't feel judged, someone that you feel good about. This can be somebody who's available to you now, or somebody who was available, or somebody that you would like to connect with. It could even be an entirely imaginary figure. Just bring to mind someone associated with care, connection, comfort. A positive figure. Try 
try to visualize them looking at you with a welcoming expression. And then gently in your mind repeat a very simple phrase. May you be happy, peaceful, and free of stress. May you be happy, peaceful, and free of stress. May you be happy, peaceful, and free of stress. And then let their image fade and bring to mind your own image. Visualize yourself. Just send the same loving-kindness, messages, thoughts, intentions. May you be happy, peaceful, free of stress. May you be happy, peaceful, free of stress. May you be happy, peaceful, free of stress. And so if we were going to continue, we would visualize other people we'd like to send kindness to people we, other people we care about, other people we don't know very well, and finally people we're ready to forgive for past conflicts or disappointments. But for now, when you hear the sound of the bell, just try to bring with you into the rest of the evening this an ongoing awareness of your internal experience. The more mindful you are, the less likely you'll switch on the stress system. The more you can bring an ongoing attention, care, and appreciation of your embodied world 
less likely chronic stress will be a challenge at any point. 